This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The Stadium Authority is to meet this Thursday. On the agenda is an update on the proposed Aloha Stadium Entertainment District, and it'll be the first time that members will hear from Mike McCartney, the director of the Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism, about a decision to go in another direction. Last week, the IAEA Neighborhood Board learned that the governor's chief of staff paused the bid process to explore the option of having the University of Hawaii build a stadium. We got reaction to the turn of events from Republican gubernatorial candidate Duke Iona on Friday. Today, we hear from Democratic contender Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. He just returned from a trip to San Diego when we talked to him Friday afternoon. The governor's made a proposal, mostly, uh, I believe, in um, consultation with Mike McCartney over at DBAD. They're very close. And the governor appears to prefer that the university handle the building of this stadium. So whoever becomes governor will have to uh, review that very carefully. I do want to build a stadium for Hawaii, and I also wanted to include a housing component. That will be important to me. Well, we still don't know at this juncture if UH is on board with this idea. Right. And UH is an independent entity, and we have to place a lot of trust in the regents. So I believe in three months' time, they're going to be able to assess this and decide whether they're up to it. But under any circumstance, the next governor should pursue a stadium. And to the best extent possible, we should in parallel be building housing. That may require a separate RFP if the governor initiates a simple stadium plan, straightforward with the $350,000 that's been appropriated. That's what he suggested in some conversations. But housing is critical. Housing is my top priority, and housing will have to be a part of whatever we do in and around the stadium. I don't know what you've been privy to just as far as this plan, but I mean, is it your sense that the next governor should decide this and not this outgoing governor? It's not my place to second guess the governor. He still has at least two to three months before either myself or Mr. Iona are responsible for steering the state forward. So I don't think we should ever undermine a current governor. That's an important general approach. However, I have had some advanced briefings both from Calvert, from individuals that have been working on the stadium authority for some time, and I see all of the different options. The key is to build the stadium and to do it transparently so the taxpayers don't have to spend any unnecessary money, and to get a stadium in place somewhat quickly so it preserves our athletic programs and is something our kids can start using. So it's got to be done efficiently. And I hope that the regents will quickly assess the governor's plan. I don't want to undermine him in any way, but I am already studying it for our own administration in case that we're chosen. And, you know, what do you know about the infrastructure and the capacity? Because, you know, that needs to be done not just for a new stadium, but really for the housing if that development, you know, goes ahead. It's critical. So the largest expense that we'll have will likely be infrastructure. But I will say this, there were already several uh, entities that wanted to build housing in and around the Halaba site. And so we had, when, when at first it was proposed as a public-private partnership, they were already gearing up for their proposal to that end. It's not going to be cheap because housing never is, but the state needs to commit itself to building infrastructure all across the state to expedite housing. That's the only way we'll make it affordable. So that's on my team's priority list. I would say housing is, I mean, I don't want to sound glib, but it's, it's 
often considered our first, second, and third priority right now because we need housing to have nurses here. We need housing to have teachers here. We need housing to have our kids stay. So we will do everything we can with this project, with Hawaiian homelands, with you know some correction of the course of Airbnbs that have gotten out of control. We'll do all these things to make sure there's more housing available. How concerned are you, though, with with inflation and a possible recession, you know, how that might set us back? I'm very concerned, although the coupling of returning Japanese travelers uh, now with the timing of interest rates rising actually should blunt the effects of a recession for Hawaii. That's important. Also, there are some other good uh, pieces of information on the horizon to consider. There will be the farm bill, which will bring billions to the states to support growth and agriculture. That's gonna be significant money from the federal side. I also expect that people are gonna continue to travel to Hawaii in significant numbers because the demand has been somewhat extraordinary. And finally, this may be a very good time to be building because it will take three to four years to build you know, the thousands of units that we need, just the, you know, kind of the tip of the iceberg. And building during this time will hopefully time out well when people start buying. And I hope, of course, that we can get interest rates down again. I do think that inflation will be curbed, but the recession will be something the next governor has to deal with. We have a good economic picture right now, though, in Hawaii. And you know, what are your thoughts about the density in that area? Well, the proposal that I saw was very ambitious, and the towers were so significant that I think they were probably overly ambitious at first, but to build, you know, two to 3,000 units is possible in that area. It's important that we spread out housing across Oahu. Also, of course, we're looking at TOD housing as kind of a linchpin of what we do, and that fits right into the plan. So we should do it. I think that in a lot of major markets, you see that people do build housing in and around stadiums. I recently took even a quick trip to San Diego to view what it looked like downtown for San Diego and other smaller cities that have built stadiums. So I think it needs to be well-informed that we do that in a dense way because we don't want urban sprawl. Also, at the same time, we have to remember that in other areas, we're going to be pushing very hard on Department of Hawaiian Homeland projects. There's well over $600 million actually available because there was already some capital improvement monies available, $175 million. So these are going to be partner projects where we're building near a stadium, we're building in Hawaiian homelands, and, of course, we're going to be seeking a lot of, I guess, humanitarian projects, too, where we can get some people who are willing to build at lower prices. We have to step in this way, and the state is going to have to support it. You know, this past week, uh, you know, we just uh, saw the military conduct a drill in the event of a, another fuel spill, you know, as they uh, work toward defueling Red Hill and shutting it down. But, you know, there was the, the concern about a moratorium development if our water is affected and something worse happens uh, down the road. You know, what are your thoughts about that? I'm going to ask the military to expedite the drilling of wells across the islands. Their resources should be used because... Unfortunately, the spill at Red Hill has at least cast doubt on our ability to rapidly build the tens of thousands of of units that we need. So they're going to need to be housing partners in addition to partners in our Ohana. And that's already been expressed by me to some of their leadership. So without a doubt, they will have to contribute to our water solution. And and they're going to have to, of course, shut down Red Hill completely. 
So there's a lot of different, I guess, chess moves to make on behalf of the people of Hawaii, but we will have to find a way to work together with the military. And it's not just in, in the protection and support of America, it's also for our families. And that means water and housing. This stadium project, I mean, I don't know, have you had a chance to get briefed by the governor just more on, you know, what's behind this idea? No, I haven't, actually. He's um, he's kept his cards pretty close to his chest on this one, and that includes, I think, with some of the, the signature departments, like D-Herd and others. So, like everyone else, I'm getting pieces of the information, but I've decidedly gone out and asked for updates from, you know, the the previous planners. So I can see what options are there. Uh, I am very interested in what the regents decide, but I'll be poised to act right away. If the governor doesn't make a final decision, we'll make a decision immediately on which direction the stadium should go. I'm hearing that uh, Goldman Sachs report says that, you know, for every month we delay, we lose $2 million in what we could do there. That sounds likely because the cost of building always goes upward. And I have had contact over the years with Goldman Sachs and some of the other banks, so I'm very aware of what they're willing to do for Hawaii. And I think there is a significant demand and desire, actually, to bond in Hawaii. We have a great rating. They will probably be looking for different places with advantages as far as sales go, and Hawaii always does sell its houses very quickly. But we're going to be focused on selling houses to local people. That's going to be our hopeful priority, and that's a delicate process, too. So first we have to build them, but we're going to err on the side of doing workforce housing and very affordable housing. I'm not interested in luxury housing at the present. I think it's more important that it's built for our workers. And do you have a sense that if this does get delayed and let's say it does uh, go to UH to build, will we have to start again from scratch with the environmental study? The environmental assessment? Yeah. I don't think so. I think that it would be satisfactory for me to accept the pre- previous environmental studies, and then I would expedite the RFPs if that were the case. So I don't want that delay, mm-hmm. uh, not only because of lost revenue, which is significant, but because of lost time. Time is the most precious commodity we have here, both for housing and for a stadium that will sustain our athletic program. So we need to move forward, but again, it's important that you only have one governor at a time. And whether it's Mr. Iona or myself, I think neither of us should undermine the current governor and his decision-making process. That was Lieutenant Governor Josh Green talking with us about the different direction that the governor is moving in with the Aloha Stadium project. The stadium authority will meet on Thursday to get an update on the decision to delay going out to bid on the project. Biden administration has made environmental equity in underserved communities a key priority. Today it announced it's creating an environmental justice office within the Environmental Protection Agency. And some are wondering if that's what's behind the latest filing by the EPA over the future of Mauna Kea. The EPA urged the National Science Foundation to consider the cultural impacts of the 30-meter telescope project, possibly considering a smaller footprint, and to fully weigh the options of other locations. Robert Kirshner, who is the executive director of the 30-meter telescope International Observatory, LLC, issued a statement in response. 
Mauna Kea is of great significance to many, and is uh, it is essential for there to be a thorough assessment of the effects of the mountain's cultural, biological, visual, and geological resources. The ongoing federal review process is key to ensuring that the community has the opportunity to share their views to fully inform the National Science Foundation of the potential effects of the TMT project. We also talked to Kealoha uh, Pesciota, the spokeswoman for the Mauna Kea Hui, about seeing Mauna Kea through the environmental justice lens. Well, I was really happy. EPA is a major federal agency that has oversight over things involving the environment and also the human environment in the way that the human environment is relying upon the environment itself, right? And so I was very happy to hear that. We have heard a lot about environmental justice and President Biden, you know, did make that a a key point of his campaign. And he has put in some key people, a fair number of Pacific Islanders, you know, Asian Americans into key slots in his administration. You know, how are you looking at that? No, I think that's really good. And actually, specifically, there's a number of Native Hawaiians in his administration also, and where they're specifically named as such, yeah. And that's a good sign. Also, women, that's part of the equity part of the environmental justice as well. Women, underserved communities, and underserved peoples, yeah, indigenous peoples and or indigenous communities. Powerful language, I think. And were you thinking that maybe we're finally getting heard? Yes, I am. And and let me add one more thing that I am aware that has changed since the Mauna Kea stand uh, occurred, you know, in the 2019. And the National Science Foundation itself added another criteria to their criteria for all projects that also included the human dimension, yeah, um, the effects on, sorry, <laughs> my chickens, the effects on the communities that surround the project area and the people that rely on that environment also. So, They've made some changes. I can't remember the exact language, the NSF language, but they definitely were looking at the equity, including women in science, yeah, people of color in science, and also indigenous, you know, Hawaiian communities in this case, right? But any communities, underserved communities that rely on the environment, yeah. We still have some way to go on dealing with TMT. The governor just sent, I think, a list of names to the Senate to sit on the agency. And I think mm-hmm. at the last time we talked, you weren't a real big fan of this authority. Well, let me put it this way. It's the process in the authority that is problematic. You know, because if a process lacks integrity, so the outcome. And so it isn't necessarily the people that are put in. It's the fact that you still have to gain majority. And there's a huge element to that, and that is that Mauna Kea is still our crown and government land, and it should not be taken out of the body corpus of our trust either. And so early on, we did mention all of these things, and we have been mentioning it all the way through. And these are land use issues. And much of the Mauna Kea cases is not about you know, you're for or against something. It's about does it meet the legal requirements of the land use? As the Mauna Kea is a conservation district, it's a historic district, and it's a national landmark. And so it has many layers of protection that actually don't, that development doesn't serve. So those are the legal intricacies that we've had to be be facing all this time. And 
also, it's a very important deal that our people were arrested when, in fact, much of this, the federal review had not been done. Those are key things that really affect the human condition. And disproportionately, it's the Native Hawaiians that are being disproportionately treated in this situation. I believe at the Supreme Court this past week, they heard arguments about the future of development up there on the mountain. You folks have been long you know, waging a legal battle over this project. How are you looking at these cases that are before the high court? There's a number of them. That's part of the thing that we've pointed out to NSF that they don't, for example, they don't have an extended lease. They do not have their federal permitting, like the NPDES permit that is needed. That's the national, that's for the Clean Water Act, right? The National Pollution Elimination and Discharge. The new committee, the new authority that we were talking about earlier, it hasn't really formed and hasn't even decided certain things. And some of that may be challenged also. So these are all these conditions. And I'm not sure if it's Specifically, the court, I haven't seen the Supreme Court case, the the latest one, honestly. But if they came down on the protection of the resources and the people, that would be good. (laughs) I think, you know, we're at a a juncture now where things are are paused. The Mm TFT officials Mm -hmm. are trying to figure out if they're going to pursue Mauna Kea or look at Chile uh, and, you know, look at the costs. So I guess we're looking to the, what, the draft EIS and to see what it says, to see what it includes, and, and, and go from there. Catherine, it also has to include the consultation specifically with Native Hawaiian people under the National Historic Preservation Act, um, Section 106. And, and, and that's, that's where uh, specifically we get to talk about um, impacts, Yeah. Um, to our cultural and um, traditional uses of the land. And so we are still not sure if NSF is going to issue a separate notice because the the National Environmental Policy Act, we're allowed to participate in that too, but the federal government is, is specifically under the National Historic Preservation Act required to consult with Native Hawaiians. Okay. And to determine the impact as well, yeah. Anything else that you just want to say? It seems like this past week may have been a good one for you folks, for the folks that that, um, have been protesting on the Mauna. I am very thankful for the EPA's, you know, statement and assessment. And I also want to say, because you you mentioned it, it, there is a pause right now. And this is is a time to reevaluate and to really try to raise the standard of aloha. And, and take serious the the situation that our people have been in. State sanctioned, you know, force was um, brought out against Hawaiian people who were in peaceful protest. And I think we need to rethink how we want to see that in the world. And we would like to actually have people, when they say respect, to really mean it, meaning take a serious, hard look at why we're asking what we are asking. Why did we ask for them to stop that? That was Mauna Kea Hui spokeswoman Kealoha Pishota talking to us about environmental justice on Mauna Kea.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Air Cargo, offering five direct flights weekly from Honolulu to Seattle-Tacoma Airport. More information at alohaaircargo.com. Next time on The World, a strange phenomenon in Lebanon. Banks are limiting the amount of cash people can take out from their own accounts. In response, some customers are making withdrawals at gunpoint. If I am in great need or somebody in my family or I am sick and I need this money, I may hold up a bank, yes, I will do it. How Lebanon's failing economy is pushing some people to take drastic action. It's on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. reality check today looks at backlash from actions that a fashion a Hawaii fashion designer took to honor England's late queen. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us today. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes. Well, interesting story that you filed today. I happened to catch uh, some of the video uh, during the coverage of the uh, funeral of the queen. Uh, you know, I noticed the Hawaii entourage there, and I thought that was a, a nice gesture. No, it was really nice, and um, uh, Kumu Micah was actually only there for uh, London Fashion Week. Um, I think now he's in Milan right now, but during that time, um, he was supposed to make a performance, but that was canceled just to kind of honor the uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, but they ended up going over there to pay tribute, and uh, as he said, this is how um, Native Hawaiians would traditionally honor someone's death, including um, Ali'i. And he uh, and his entourage sang Aloha Oi, uh, which was a song written by Queen Lili Uokalani. But that didn't sit well with a number of people. It was pretty mixed from what I saw on social media. There were folks who were tweeting about it. Those were on Facebook, um, Instagram, all the social media platforms. Some were saying, you know, it's a beautiful tribute. What a nice... um, way to represent Hawaii, while others were saying, this is vile, we don't agree with this, um, you don't speak for Hawaii, and it's just, there's just this divide in tension. And so you use, you use this uh, then as an opportunity to kind of reflect on the monarchy uh, in Hawaii as well as in uh, Great Britain. Yeah, and they actually, back in the 1700s, with the upon the arrival of James uh, Cook, they, you know, they, they took a lot of... Um, uh, they, well, sorry, they didn't take, but they built a relationship, uh, the Hawaiian monarchy, along with the British monarchy, and kind of just expanded throughout there, and then um, just kind of how they kind of reflected on that. And so, gosh, uh, I know that, uh, you know, folks were, were, were split, like you said, uh, saying that this was a, a nice way to be able to uh, pay homage to the queen and, and acknowledge the loss, you know, as, as a... You know, we used to have a nation-to-nation relationship um, with England. Yeah, but then also um, there's also the divide on that. When I've talked to uh, Norne Wong-Wilson, she actually was one of those who mourned uh, with the millions with uh, Queen Elizabeth's death, saying this is a painful reminder of how maybe our Hawaii has felt when Queen Liliuokalani died. However, on the other side, there's kind of this resentment to Queen Elizabeth II and her um, ancestors on why they didn't help Hawaii during the overthrow. Right. And then, you know, obviously a, a lot of discussion uh, there uh, in that country talking about the the colonies that uh, England uh, 
you know, took over and remained colonies for a very long time. Yeah, and a lot of them broke free, actually, um, and became uh, independent under King George III and also Queen Elizabeth II. Um, there's um, a little bit of confusion, and I've talked to um, some histor- uh, history experts on why there's a confusion. Just because Queen Elizabeth represents uh, the colonial past, she actually wasn't the one colonizing that was under Queen Victoria. Um, a lot of um, countries actually gained independence, such as Ghana, Samoa, New Zealand, Pap- Papua New Guinea, and the Solomon Islands under uh, Queen Elizabeth II. And so, gosh, uh, you know, I mean, we have our uh, Hawaiian flag with the, the Union Jack on there. So this was just an opportunity to kind of explore that relationship between the two nations. Yeah, and King Kamehameha I and uh, uh, Captain George Vancouver, they were friends, and uh, King Kamehameha actually um, seeked um, consultation from King George to create the Union Jack, and that Union Jack in the red, white, and blue is supposed to symbolize saying, hey, we have some powerful friends, so don't mess with us. And so, gosh, uh, anything else you can share about uh, uh, Micah Kamohuali'i, his thoughts on, on the backlash? He basically said there's some illiteracy, but also what wasn't really taught as much in school as well as um, I think there's a lot of hurt and resentment to, you know, the fallen kingdom, the fallen Hawaiian kingdom and why the British monarchs didn't help during that time. And a UH professor did say UK would have liked to help, but that was during a time when uh, UK had um, some political problems with the US over Venezuela. So they didn't want to um, upset that apple cart. Well, a good opportunity to kind of go back and learn some history. But thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you. That was reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's Reality Check. You can read her story at civilbeat.org. Today, the University of Hawaii kicks off a series of town hall meetings to get feedback on the first draft of its strategic plan. It's a blueprint that outlines four initiatives to guide the UH system for the next five years. Deborah Halbert is the vice president for academic strategy. She talked to us about the university's priorities. It's a post-pandemic era. The state has undergone a lot of changes since our last strategic plan. Certainly higher education has undergone a lot of changes since our last strategic planning efforts. So thinking about both what's old and new in the context of what we want to do in the next five years is kind of where we're at. And so while student success remains a very critical value for the strategic plan, there's a lot of other nuances that we need to begin to think about, like the balance of online versus face-to-face education, things like that, how we contribute to the important state needs for healthcare or education or information technology. So those are all of the things we're kind of thinking about right now. And we did have a big campaign to make sure our students were able to get their degrees sooner than later. How did we do? 
So we have been steadily improving our graduation rates over the last 10 to 15 years. And a lot of the initiatives we've been doing is trying to make sure that we alleviate any kind of institutional or structural barriers to achieving your degree in two or four years. Obviously, a lot of students are part-time. A lot of students want to take their time getting their education. Our goal is to make sure that we're not the reason that they're not graduating in four years. And so there's been a lot of work in terms of how students register. We have degree pathways. We're working on pathways between two-year and four-year campuses, articulation agreements. So there's a lot of continuing work going on to help improve our graduation rates and make sure that students can graduate on time and when they want to. And so the snapshot of the strategic plan, you've got these Mm -hmm. imperatives. You know, one is successful students. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a better future. Number two is meeting our workforce needs. Yes. And that's key. You talked about the pandemic and we need more nurses. We need more teachers. How do we plan to do that? So right now we have ongoing conversations with what we're calling our sector convenings. So both internal to the university and external to the university, there are active conversations on how we can begin to address some of these needs. So the University of Hawaii across its many campuses already offers a lot of degree programs that are vital and relevant to these fields, healthcare specifically, education, information technology, and agriculture are the big ones that we're looking at right now. And so what we're trying to do is bring together those in the workforce as well as our academic and curricular specialists to consider how we can make sure we're mapping to what is needed for the state, develop the right programs, make sure we're offering the right kinds of courses, and continue to have that open conversation. So that's even before the strategic planning process, that's been part of what we're doing. The strategic plan helps us really crystallize that goal, I think, and make it clear for both our internal and our external stakeholders about what we want to be doing. You know, we know of the challenges of getting enough nursing faculty you know, yeah. the head of the Healthcare Association told us this month that it's tough when they're turning away students. We're looking at developing a nursing leadership program to help train new nursing faculty to help alleviate some of that shortage. You're right. It's it's just an ongoing challenge that we are trying to determine the best ways to resolve. At mm-hmm. one time, there was a big push to really boost the number of teachers that we produce at the College mm-hmm. of Education. And I think they brought together the, the UH regents and the school board. And it's an ongoing challenge for us. And the College of Education for Manoa, as well as all of our additional campuses, are continuing to work on strategies to do that. We've also recently talked about some possibilities for extending internships into the high schools for people who may want to be teachers and so that they could sort of learn as they do as they grow through their programs. So there's some other innovative programming that we're looking at to help alleviate that teacher shortage as well. You mentioned ag. What are we doing in that Mm -hmm. area? So with agriculture, we held a convening last spring where we brought together a variety of folks from different agricultural aspects in the state and brought them into conversation with our, our agricultural programs, again, to sort of see how we can align our curricular 
programs with the, the needs of the state. And so we've started those conversations. We're also looking at ways we can build out our course offerings from across the system so that students can take advantage of different courses from different campuses and use that to help build out their degrees and their specialization. So we're trying also in that area to continue the conversations. And then you've got as imperative number three, embracing kuleana to Hawaiians in Hawaii. So it's, you know, our responsibility, Mm -hmm. I guess, as a university to deal with some of the inequities with the host culture here. Yes. One of the things that we've been looking very, which we think is really important, is how the university can become a Hawaiian place of learning. That is a specific goal for the University of Hawaii at Manoa, but there are, of course, all the other campuses that have other ways of investigating that same particular issue. So that is, I think, one of the very important things as a system we can do to help clarify the role and responsibility we have to Native Hawaiians in the state. Yeah, and a lot of it is getting more Hawaiians in college, whether that be as students or as faculty, as part of the administration. Yes, absolutely. So you just really said exactly what we want to try to do to make sure that we have students that are coming in as incoming first-year students, but also that we graduate those students, that they go to graduate school, that we can hire Native Hawaiians as faculty and as they advance through the ranks into the administration. And then, you know, we've heard a lot during this pandemic about innovation, how we have to lessen our dependence on tourism because we just learned, you know, a tough lesson during this pandemic. Absolutely. And I think the innovation imperative is it it can't be overemphasized. I think the University of Hawaii is poised to really help the state think about what it can be going forward that goes beyond tourism. And there is so much research and interesting work being done across the UH system along those lines. And the innovation component of the strategic plan is a pretty critical piece that crosses across all kinds of sectors. So it goes beyond those workforce needs of the present to think about how we can shape the future of the economy of the state. And the university, of course, plays a pretty pretty critical role in that. I think back to the shutdown and how there were parts of our economy that just chugged along, right? Construction kept Mm -hmm. going. We saw the film industry manage to find ways to get productions going again, you know, with the bubbles, just to see, okay, what else is there and what can we, what can we grow going forward? One of the, to the degree there are positive things that came out of the shutdown. I think the focus on human ingenuity and creativity was one of those. And we certainly saw a lot of that. And I think from a university perspective, there's, there was a huge transformation of how we taught, and there's still a lot that we're learning and being able to develop about how we teach in, in a future using technology in ways that we didn't before and, and how that can potentially reach even further throughout the state to rural and more remote areas and bring education to where people are as opposed to trying to have everybody come to where the institution is. So that's another dimension that we can start to focus on hopefully going forward. I mean, the strategic plan really becomes an important moment for conversation between the university, within the community, about what we value and how we want to shape the future of not just the university, but the state. So I encourage folks to check out the website, look at the resources, send comments if they want. We are still, of course, developing the strategic plan, so it will go before the Board of Regents later this year and hopefully we'll be able to 
have some good conversation between now and then about it. And I know in years past, you know, there have been decisions to realign the curriculum and the departments, and, and there is an effort right now to kind of reorg the university system. And I guess that's going to what, just align with some of these strategic goals going forward? Yeah, University of Manoa has been undergoing a reorganization structurally, especially at the vice chancellor, well, now vice provost level. And, you know, a lot of that is to really try to make sure that as an institution, we continue to reflect changes because things change over time. And we want to make sure that we are both a resilient institution, but also able to um, manage change in the best possible way. And so sometimes the things that we learned 100 years ago aren't the things we need to learn 100 years from now. And so trying to always be responsive to both the present and the future is part of what we're trying to do. That was Deborah Halbert, Vice President for Academic Strategy for the University of Hawaii System. She was talking about the draft strategic plan that was recently released. A series of town hall meetings to get input kicks off today at 1.30 and continues through October 14th. Look for links on the conversation page on our website. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Outrigger Hotels and Resorts, committed to guest and employee safety, while also featuring the Malama Hawaii Experience, offering hands-on cultural learning in Malama Ka'aina, caring for the land, outrigger.com. Alcohol can impair judgment and make someone feel like they can drive safely even when they can't. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about a proposal to lower the legal blood alcohol limit and why. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the 17th Annual Hawaii Book and Music Festival, celebrating stories and storytelling throughout October. Schedule at hawaiibookandmusicfestival.com. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. The James Webb Space Telescope gets a closer look at the planet Neptune. Astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to bring you your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe around us and also a look into our island skies, see what we might find. And we're thankful to have the intelligent services of astronomer Christopher Phillips at our disposal. And here he is again this week joining us. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have this week? Hey, Dave. Good to be back. So this week's stargazers look to the southeast after sunset to see Jupiter and Saturn. Both planets are bright and easy to spot. The moon this week will be approaching its first quarter phase, perfect for spotting those faint objects in the heavens. And we understand that something that's been doing some spotting is the James Webb Space Telescope, and you have something to do with Neptune and that nifty device, huh? Indeed. 
Yes, the JWST, as it's known, continues to produce impressive scientific products. And this past week has been no exception. The JWST captured spectacular images of the ice giant planet Neptune. These images lay bare the Neptunian ring system, an enigmatic system of rings that is one of the faintest rings in the outer planet. Not only did JWST reveal the ring system, but also hidden details in the upper atmosphere of the giant planet. Details that are normally hidden beneath its blue haze. And we'll have these images in the Stargazer post at hawaiipublicradio.org, and they are really spectacular. Chris, kind of explain how the JWST was able to do this. Well, JWST used an instrument called the Near Infrared Camera, or NearCap. This instrument is able to capture light in the infrared part of the spectrum in a region invisible to the human eye. And one thing I noticed is Neptune doesn't seem to be blue in these images. Does that have something to do with the near cam? Indeed it does. In visible wavelengths, Neptune appears blue. This is due to the methane in the atmosphere that scatters sunlight, rendering the planet in a blue hue. JWST sees detail that only near-infrared light can reveal, and so it looks a lot different. And I'm also seeing, and of course I could be way wrong about this, but I'm seeing what looks like storms in the atmosphere there too in some of these images. Is that accurate? Yep, you are bang on, Dave. This is very exciting because NearCamp is able to get a glimpse into the weather systems on this giant planet. And these, in turn, can tell us a great deal about what powers these weather systems. This is really exciting stuff. When was the last time, Chris, we've seen Neptune this way? Well, JWST's images are very unique. But around 30 years ago, the Voyager probe was able to capture remarkable images of the planet, but in visible light. And Voyager was using 1970s tech. JWST is set to carry on that tradition of planetary discovery, and I can't wait to see what comes next. And compared to that mission, that one was a lot closer too, right? That thing was passing real close to it. This is taking that image from a really great distance. That's exactly right. Voyager got very close on its flyby as it headed out of the solar system and into interstellar space. Well, great report from you. We appreciate it. It's Christopher Phillips, and thank you. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Waimanalo Health Center's expanded facility, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. You know, these days you don't often hear too much of women or men dying of breast cancer. Early diagnosis is key to that. Survivors of breast cancer and their supporters will take part in the first in-person event since the pandemic. You may be familiar with the Susan Komen Race for the Cure fundraising event, but get used to the moniker More Than Pink. We talked to Komen Hawaii Executive Director Rolanda Morgan about a change in emphasis in advance of a fundraising event this Sunday. Race for the Cure has a 27-year legacy here in Hawaii. The More Than Pink Walk was always an alternative event from Susan G. Komen and its fundraising efforts. As you say, post-pandemic, many changes have happened on lots of levels. Uh, We made the decision to use this format, which we are really thrilled to be bringing because we feel that it gives an opportunity for a lot more people to participate. 
those who were never felt never chose to really race and it, we never really had an actual race and most people did walk in our event so it is the same but different i think different in some very very positive ways one of which as i mentioned was i think it makes it much more accessible for a lot more people to participate and it has elements that are really celebratory for those in the community who are breast cancer survivors who are living with breast cancer. We have a tremendous portion of the opening ceremony where there is a huge acknowledgement to those people in our, our community. A lot more participation and an interactivity with all of those who are in attendance, the more education available in the expo area, which is available to everyone pre and post the walk, to expose the community to what is happening in research where breast cancer is concerned, how we as an organization are impacting the community through advocacy, both on a local and national basis to make sure that any legislation as it applies to women's health in Maine and specifically those around breast cancer are being addressed as a part of a 360-degree approach that Coleman uses in our work in the breast cancer community. And share with our listeners who may not know the story about Susan Coleman, uh, because it was a sister of Susan, I think, that started this. That's correct. Her sister was, at the time, when she went through her breast cancer journey, there weren't the same level of advances that we have. Her breast cancer was detected in a late stage, and as a result of that, she passed away. And her sister made a promise to her that she would do whatever she could and made a commitment to work diligently, and we continue to have that commitment as an organization in her name to ultimately reach a vision where there's a world without breast cancer. And the whole thing with breast cancer is if there is early detection, you have a greater chance of of surviving this cancer. Absolutely, and now more than ever. And we've made great strides from the point of view of educating women and men, because men at a much, much smaller degree do also have breast cancer. That early detection will give one a better chance at a better outcome. We are not really dying from stage one breast cancer anymore. As a matter of fact, our early detection program through education really has has had quite an effect in how our numbers are changing. And so lot- we are, quite frankly, really focusing our efforts, particularly as it applies to where our investment in, in research and, and Coleman uh, stands second only to the United States government and how much funding as a result of events such as our More Than Pink Walk coming up is dedicated to research to find new treatments for the metastatic breast cancer community. So we are really at the forefront of funding terrific research to help us find treatments so that people can live longer and better lives who are living with most aggressive and deadly breast cancers. And I know I've done stories, you know, where there have been, I think, like twin studies, uh, sisters, you know, who've had cancer. And, and uh, you know, so the, the, the more that we do this research, the more we can learn about this disease. Exactly. And we're doing research right here in Hawaii at the UH Cancer Center around breast cancer as it is being done around the country. So that is a part of, again, our our real focus. And our research is guided by really world-renowned experts 
um, so that we can really get to those treatments and our ultimate goal is a cure. And, you know, I, I know that there are studies that look at ethnicity and cancer. And because we have such a varied you know, population here, that a lot of those studies, you know, are focused on that. Absolutely. A lot are. And but our point of view is one zip code and and or one's ethnicity, uh, as we discover through the research coming from uh, those researchers that we are supporting through our funding that are specific to a certain segment of our population are discovered, we can, again, get more targeted in how we are approaching our treatment as well. As a matter of fact, that has been an impetus for how we are now delivering our services out to the community as well. I talked a bit about how we fund uh, research and how we have used education to work on early detection by getting people to understand that they need to have their mammograms, keep those appointments, when to begin to have them. We did take a bit of a hit in that area as a result of the pandemic in that because we were restricted in how we could move, many women had to delay screening. Some treatments were delayed. So it is being projected that we may have some effect on mortality rates from breast cancer as a result of that. I mean, it's too early to, to tell at this point. But there was a bit of a delay. So, so the message uh, is, though, during this pandemic, people put off those mammograms or for treatment, you've got to resume those. Absolutely. And we've done the community here, the service providers, our hospital systems uh, here in Hawaii have done a great job in rebounding from those delays and have gotten caught up, really, with the people who had to delay to a great degree. So we give kudos to our many great partners here in the medical community in Hawaii. That was Rolanda Morgan, Executive Director of Komen Hawaii. The More Than Pink Walk will take place this Sunday, October 2nd at Kapi'olani Park. We'll have links to more information on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Well, that is it for today. Tomorrow, we plan to continue the conversation around the new stadium direction. What do you think about this 11th hour change so late in the governor's term? Call our talkback line to sound off, 808-792-8217. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard? Well, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow for more of the conversation.